Michael Vonnen, one and all, to the uh, inaugural episode of the Literary Baptists, uh, which is a, a show that is uh, unlike our universe, ever evolving, and uh, and hopefully we're we're, we're going to have a, an enlightening and yet uh, entertaining discussion through one of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the Silmarillion. Maybe it, w- it was partly inspired by the uh, the Amazon show, but I'd like to think that we had uh, good reasons for uh, confessional Baptists to want to discuss uh, great works from a great author and maybe even the intersection of that fiction with uh, the truths of the faith. So I am Lee, and I'm here with Zach, Nick, and Maddie. Together, we are the Literary Baptists. So we, so we're starting a, a a chat through of the Silmarillion, and we're better place to begin than the very first chapter, the Ainu Lindale. So now, who here has read the Silmarillion, and how recently? Uh, obviously, before prepping this episode. Mm-hmm. Zach, I, I read it a few years ago. Yeah. Not Zach, though. Oh, hello. <laughs> okay, I'll go, go first. Okay. Second, okay. Secondly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've read it. I've actually read the whole thing twice. Uh, it's been quite a few years since I, since I read it last. Um, probably 10. Um, wow. Yeah, it, it's, it's been quite a while. Well, I'm currently finishing it. I have one chapter to go to completely finish it, and it's my second attempt. And I tried it about 15 years ago and gave up because it was the first of the Tolkien books I ever even attempted to read to my doom. And uh, I was, yeah, rapidly overwhelmed. And uh, only recently, in fact, it put kind of a bad taste in my mouth for the series until recently when I went ahead and decided to attempt it again. And I regret my life because I waited to way too long. <laughs> it really makes you think of the significance of the passage of time. It really does. <laughs> it really does. Nicholas, what's your story with the Silmarillion? I, I read Hobbit and Lord of the Rings a few years ago. And then I said, well, yeah, I may as well finish and read the Silmarillion. So I forced myself to do it for, I said, I'm going to force myself to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I did it and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, everybody says it's oh it's so hard to get through. And nope. it's, it's not, it's, it's, uh, there are parts that are better than others, but it's great. Yeah. It's worth reading, but do it third. Right. Right. Do it third. Uh, yeah, I've talked to people before about like what 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 sh- what should be the progression of going through Tolkien's works, and definitely you've got to start with the Hobbit, then you've got to progress up to the Lord of the Rings. Sometimes I think parts of Lord of the Rings are more difficult than even parts of the Silmarillion. Um, I think part part of the thing for the Silmarillion is the chapters on a whole are are usually pretty short, <clears throat> so I could sit down and read well like. Preparing for this episode, I I was able to read the Ainu Lindale in one sitting. Um, I I don't know even with some of the shorter chapters of Lord of the Rings, I don't think I would have been able to do that. It's just sometimes those chapters really do stretch on in a, in a good way, but just 
you know, more pages per chapter, you know, you, it, the reading experience kind of stretches out. Um, but that was my journey too. Um, I had read The Hobbit uh, right around the time the Jackson films came out and then read The Lord of the Rings after seeing all the Jackson films, which I was kind of glad that happened because I think if I had gotten really wrapped up in the books before I saw the movies, I would probably hate the movies almost as much as I hate Rings of Power right now. <laughs> I'm going to let my hater flag fly right now. <laughs> but uh, um, And then The Silmarillion. I actually, fun fact, I had read it. In a, I, I, well, I had listened to the audiobook once, probably back in like 2016, 2015, 2016. And then um, in 2020, uh, I was like, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it on paper. And I enjoyed it so much. I actually read it twice in that year. Uh, and, and it just kind of took over. It took over my, my Tolkien brain. And it, and it has a way of like, kind of adding like a special layer of history to middle earth that, uh, that really gets played out in Lord of the Rings. But Lord of the Rings now feels that much more epic for having kind of taken in the Silmarillion mm. as a, as a whole. And I think this chapter plays a big part in that too, at least for me. Of course, Genesis is one of my favorite books of the Bible anyway. And there's so much like of a Genesis feel to, to this, obviously in a, in a different way, um, sub created in, in a different way. Who has just some sort of uh, some general reflections uh, about the chapter? Um, what were, what were your, uh, Maybe for those of us who have read it recently, after either after a long time or not or not previously, what what were some of the kind of standout uh, maybe passages? If you had a favorite <laughs> passage that you wanted to that really stuck out to you, do, do we need to go in order? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> if so, I'll jump. Jump. Uh. Might as well jump. So one of the things that I found interesting, and I don't remember reading this the first time that I read it, but the idea of Melkor going out uh, and and wanting to be in the void and trying to search for the, the flame, uh, I thought it was very interesting that he pursues solitude uh, and the source of some of that, maybe not the source, but it's an expression of some of that evil, that pride, um, and that that kind of lust for power is manifested in solitude, and um, and whereas the the some of the other um, of the Ainur are, are we going to make fun of pronunciation? Uh, but uh, yes, but silently. <laughs> but they um, they tend towards. Um, working together uh, and, and uh, working, going against the solitary man as a team, basically. Uh, that was something I just didn't notice the first time I read through. And, um, but I, I think it's actually a big theme in the, in the chapter or whatever we're going to call it. Yeah, it's a it's a chapter, but it's also kind of like a whole section of the Silmarillion on its own too. So it's yeah. like weird. No, I I uh, I definitely I get what you mean about the issue of of like of secrecy 
Um, cause I think, uh, I I've heard some folks in and thought about it independently too, that there is a theme of, of, um, issues regarding works done in secrecy, uh, with several different characters throughout the legendarium. And actually a lot of them are, are related both to Melkor slash Morgoth, uh, as well as Alway too, um, who kind of, we'll, we'll see in future chapters here that, that he did his own secret works, uh, that, that caused no small ripple in, in, among the, uh, among the Ainur. So, yeah, I think there's definitely something there about issues of works, works done in darkness versus out in the open. Uh, Anyone else? Any other big, big things that jumped out to you on, on your read? Well, I I really enjoyed the whole reference to <clears throat> the singing and the music just being um, the way that uh, Iluvatar is, you know, communicating with them. At first, it says he speaks to them and expounds to them a musical theme by speaking to them, which was interesting to me. Um, he doesn't sing it to them, but he speaks and they hear music um, <clears throat> and they begin to sing, um, which is it's just really cool to me that music is kind of my background. But um, all the, the melodies and the counter melodies and the, all the harmonies that they um, talk about in the in the creation and you can see that <clears throat> it's, it's like a it's it's like a if you listen to uh, a, a classic work of of music you you can <clears throat> you you hear all the different pieces and how they fit together and to use that as the way that the, uh, a world is created it was it's just really uh, brilliant to me because you have all these intricacies and they just, you have the, the master, um, the composer who, who fits them all together. He already has this music in his mind and basically he writes it down and someone else performs it and it's, he gets to sit back and, and direct, <clears throat> which is, is pretty cool. But um, I, that, that's not the way that God did it. But <laughs> Right, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a really cool creation story. And it's, uh... Right, it, yeah it's it's not the way it's not the way that God did it. But I think one of the interesting things about Tolkien's philosophy, um, the the whole issue or not issue, the whole the idea of sub creation that he puts forward, you know that <clears throat> this this creation account contains the elements of the creation of the real world, um, but sort of remixes it uh, in, in so, so, some sort of a way to, to fit the story that Tolkien's trying to tell. But he can't escape the fact that the world was spoken into existence, uh, but he turns it into song. Um, right. And, and I, I think that's very, um, I think it's very affecting because we, we know the power of music. Um, we, we, we've all been affected by music in some way. And it seems almost innate to to think that that the beauty of of music would be at the core of the world. I think that's that's a beautiful idea. Yeah. I also, I wonder if there's a relation um, between 
the different ages of the earth and the different movements we see in the creation music. Um, <clears throat> there are three strains. Right. Um, so I, I wonder if there's some of that. And at the end of the third, it stops, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you don't really... <laughs> We don't. We don't know what happens. <laughs> right, because you know, kind of a fourth age begins at the end of Lord of the Rings, and then there's no more. There's no more story to tell after the end of right. the third age, right? Right. It does fit kind of. Uh, nice. I, I don't. I don't know how much of that is, was intentional with, with Tolkien. It probably was, um, but it, I may be. I may be reaching for something that he wasn't intending. But I, I just thought maybe there could be a. A relation there to the the number of of time, like you see Melkor start to meddle a little bit within the first movement, and then in the second movement you have the coming of the 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 children, um, and then at, by the end of the third movement, you, <clears throat> in the second movement it says that um, Melkor gains the upper hand, um, and, and you would see that I think played out in the history of middle earth um with melkor gaining um an upper hand and in the first one it just causes he just causes problems and you you see that at the end of the chapter everything they create he's he's meddling with and causing problems um and then by the end of the third one it's like okay i'm gonna stop this now so it Maybe I'm reaching. I don't know. But I thought it was interesting at least. Yeah, because at some point the world has to be created. Like the the creation has to end at some point, right? You know, in order for the life to go on, um, in order for the children to to wake up. So Mm -hmm. um, it does have to end at at some point. And I know this is something we'll we'll talk about in a bit, but um, Eru Iluvatar is uh, the one to stop the music, right? It's not like the Ainur quit singing. It was, right. he said, you know, Aya, let these things be. Like the right. singing had to end in order for the things to be. Yeah. Maddie, any, any big thoughts? Any big powerful thoughts? Nothing really aside from what I think we're going to talk about anyways, you know, um, <laughs> but you know, on what Zach was saying, um, I thought it was significant. I guess we'll talk about it here in a little bit. Just the significance of singing. Um, just how like when you try to study, say, like memorize scripture, it's much harder than memorizing a song. Like mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I can memorize a song from like middle school and then try to like actually memorize verse. It's just interesting how we can retain song so much easier than just uh, words on a page or spoken word. Um, so I just, I thought that stood out to me, especially because I'm not like a musical person. I love music, but I can't play an instrument and I can't sing. And uh, I don't know how to read music or anything like that. So to be honest, like reading Tolkien's work with all his music, I'm learning to appreciate the music throughout his work and the song because at first it was kind of in a sense, a nuisance for me because like, I don't know what tune this goes to. I don't know how to read this in my head to a song. 
Um, it seemed kind of like an interruption that I didn't really particularly care for at first. But as I listen to like audiobooks and stuff, and the more I study about um, history and medieval, you know, stuff like that, where they really use song quite a bit to tell story and entertain. And um, I just think that's, it stands out as something that's unique to Tolkien's work, obviously. Yeah, that, that's what a lot of people say, especially when they're reading Lord of the Rings. They're like, yeah, just skip the poems. Just read the story. I'm like, no, don't don't skip the poems because uh, they do. They tell so much and and they, they do kind of lock in with this greater theme of music being so central to the world. Um, and what's so um, interesting is that like we're doing an audiobook of um, The Fellowship of the Ring with my family. So we're listening. We just listened to the House of Tom Bombadil, and he said so much through that. And it was so cool to hear that again after reading the Similarion. Like so much of what I've read actually comes out in his song, which before when I read it and I hadn't read the Similarion, like it just totally went over my head. I didn't cue in any of it. So, yeah, it really does deepen the whole the whole experience of, of Lord of the Rings. Oh, and you know, man. So, okay. So here's a crazy fan theory that people, since you brought up Tom Bombadil, uh, a lot of people think that he, uh, in the books is the embodiment of the music of the Ainur, uh, the theme of Iluvatar. Hmm. Uh, and that, so like, he's not just some like elemental spirit that he, he's very much, uh, like the, symbolizing the presence of Eru in his creation and is, is completely like untouchable with evil, uh, which is why he can hold the ring and kind of, you know, toss it around and, and hand it back and, and have no effect whatsoever. Cause he's not, he's not of Arda. He's something else. Yeah. That would make sense why he was there before men. Imagining the creation, you know, with this beautiful music, and then you hear Tom Bombadillo. Are there eternal relations of origin between himself, his blue hat, and his boots that are yellow? <laughs> That's what we really need to ask. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love the Tom Bombadil chapters of Fellowship of the Ring. They are some of my favorite parts of that book. 100% agree. Yes. The whimsy. Ah, oh, it's so good. I'm a big Bombadil stan. For real, for real. No cap. <laughs> That's right. On Eru. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we we danced around it a little bit, but I'm curious what you think. Uh, what what reflections of uh, the Book of Genesis do you guys see in the Ainulin delay? Was there anything that particularly stood out to you that was like, man, you know that that feels very real? I, I have some ideas. While I find my passage, if anybody else has any thoughts, I don't know. Just carving out a place for the the children to to dwell was pretty um pretty garden of eden there um 
<clears throat> other than that, I don't know that I would have drawn in a whole lot of specific um, parallels to Genesis in particular um, or the creation story there um, other than, you know, God speaking and, and like, let it be, you know, let there kind of like a let there be light, for, you know, he speaks and it is, you know, um, you, you have that. But um, I, I think the the rest of it is more like um, we see what happens with um, Lucifer, you know, we we think of that and we go, OK, that's obviously <laughs> like Melkor is Lucifer in the way that he you know, lusts after power, um, and, and wants, wants to be God. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he brings that to earth with him. And the mention of the void, you know, in the beginning, yeah. the earth was out, was without form and void. Water. So that. water. Yeah. Lots yeah. Water. There, were, there were deeps there. Yeah. That was a big one. That that was something I was going to tune into if you guys didn't mention it. Um, that whole very much like um, unfinished <laughs> aspect of the world uh, as mm-hmm. as the music was being played out, as as the spirit hovered over the surface of the waters almost. Uh, that, that was what came to mind to me regarding that. Um, I, I found, so the passage, one of the, the, one of the things that really stood out to me uh, in thinking about uh, the, the creation story in Genesis. Um, so he's, Iluvatar is kind of rebuking Melkor here, um, but it's a quote. It says, so mighty are the Ainur and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know that all the Ainur and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar. Um, so very much like Tetragrammaton, uh, I am that I am. I am Iluvatar. Uh, those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme can be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Mm-hmm. And so... Just in that one quote, you know, I, I see reflections of the sovereignty of Yahweh over his creation and the fact that even those who attempt evil and attempt to subvert his plan only further go on to, to actually serve it out and, and by opposing it be crushed and and then the glory of, of his righteousness stamp out that evil uh, and, and be shown to be that much brighter for having overcome the darkness. Yeah, you just become a part of the composition, and it, mm-hmm. it's all like if you heard that part by itself, you might go ooh. But in the <laughs> in the you know the greater sound, it's wow! Look what look what God has done. You know, mm-hmm. so it's well, yeah. and even the significance of him singing the song and then doing the song before the foundation of the world, as it were. <laughs> You know, it's like it's all laid out before it even happens. So you get that heavy emphasis on, spoiler alert, predestination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <sighs> we got Calvinists up in this room. Absolutely. 
Didn't, I think Lewis did something similar though in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia with, with Magician's the, nephew. Yeah, yeah. There was yeah, singing. Aslan singing. sung sung uh, Narnia into existence. Yeah, which is interesting because between like you have Aslan singing Narnia into an existence, and then my kids and I just finished uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and they go to the end of the Earth. And so I'm seeing like echoes of that, obviously, later on in, mm-hmm. in this book, the ends of the earth. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was interesting, the parallels between their ideas. Now, I've, I've heard some people criticize this chapter to say that that um, Middle Earth is a polytheistic place, that mm-hmm. there are that there are multiple gods. And so I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on the presence of the Ainur as almost a means of creation, or are they themselves also creators? (laughs) Not everybody (laughs) at once. (laughs) I I don't think that it's, it's still very clear that Eru is the source of everything. He's the one who taught, well, he created them. Then he taught them the music and taught them how to do the music. Like there's no way that you could, point to anything except Melkor's uh, you know his his pride and, and him wanting to do his own thing everything else is just clearly line you know direct line but then you know the the passage you read Lee I mean mm-hmm. even that like he 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 knew it and yeah. it's not going to upset anything I, I don't think it's really fair to um, to make it poly to say that it's polytheistic, especially since there is that direct line. You can point, you can say, where did the Einar come from? Where did the music come from? And every time it goes back, where did the the flame, the, mm-hmm. the imperishable flame come from? Yeah. The, all of this stuff has its source. Why they're not called the children of the Ainur when the elves and men wake up? They're the children of Iluvatar. It, it, yeah. it all has its source. Um, well, and the Ainur are called the offspring of his thought. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they even come from his thought. And I think, like, I had the gut reaction to think, oh, this is, like, pagan, you know, polytheistic. Because it does echo so much of, like, that Greek kind of pantheon thing happening. But at the same time, I mean, I'm I'm not a Tolkien <laughs> scholar. I don't know everything that he's ever written or anything like that. But part of me thinks that this is his attempt of like a monotheistic response to pagan myth and how he's showing that while people might have come up with these different multiple gods, that really they're all echoes of what God has done in his creation. And it's kind of his way of writing that into his own story. Because they, as we see later, they all kind of have their own elements or, you know, realms, as it were, of where they're involved. So it does seem pan- or polytheistic in that sense. But at the same time, they're all from his thought. And they all come from him, like you said. That's a good everything, everything that they create, too, if, if you go back and read it, they were already shown a vision of that. So... They they sing it and then Aru shows them the the vision of their song, and then they go create what they saw in their vision. 
So it's it's not like they're coming up with it on their own. A, a lot of this reminds me of the writing of like the Bible. You know, the you know, yes, we can point to Paul wrote this part or David wrote this part, Moses, but I mean, we all still say that this is the word of God. And so, you know, we don't we don't think that the human authorship of the Bible in any way diminishes the, the divine authorship of the Bible. And I think that's the same way in this uh, with the creation. Except it's not human. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really agree with you there. Uh, that that was kind of a thought that I was having as well, that like in the same way that, you know, the. The spirit uh, indwelt the the biblical authors, so that we can say that their words are are the words of God as well. I think that very same principle is being subcreated into this creation tale, where Eru is very much inspiring these works of these holy ones. Where it, so it says that, that well, just the first. I love the first ver or the first verse, the first. Uh, sentence of this <laughs> i i'm problematic i know uh, the, fir the first Turn sentence in. where it's a yes my steak is prepared <laughs> uh you know it, it's pretty clear like there was eru the one who in arda is called iluvatar thanks thanks elves uh, for making an extra name uh, <laughs> and he made first the ainur the holy ones that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. And it's and then you could almost hear in there, and and all things were made through him and and for him, right? I, I think a very similar creative principle of, of the logos, uh, but just the Ainur in, in this world. I've got a controversial thing that I'll add. It actually the a lot of this reminds me of the michael heiser kind of theology mm -hmm. with those uh i forget what he calls it like the divine council divine council something yeah. um it, it it reminds me a lot of that where you have these almost like um the pagan gods these great like super angels uh that that are involved in doing a lot of god's work delegated uh not doing it on their own or anything but delegating mm -hmm. god delegates work to them I, I, this reminds me a lot of that and i wonder if they have some kind of a common source i don't think i don't think that uh i don't think that you know that heiser is getting his stuff from uh the silmarillion but uh, <laughs> i hope not <laughs> <laughs> i wonder but, though if there is like a roman catholic crossover there or something i don't know much about the, their theology of too much about angelology, for instance, for them. Well, I know they have a heavy emphasis on like the archangel Michael and Gabriel and things like that. But I haven't read, you know, any of the Apocrypha, so I have no idea. And I know that Heiser gets a lot from the Book of Enoch, which is just some, you know, non-canonical book. Uh, I think it's, isn't it kind of Gnostic? I don't, I haven't read it, so I don't know. It's, but, it's kind of in the messy middle. Yeah. It gets quoted, though, in, uh, well, the, the part in, That's true. in Jude about uh, Michael fighting over right. the bones of Moses. Right. Yeah. 
And you so, do see a lot of imagery in the Bible of angels doing the work of God, <clears throat> whether it's just purely symbolic or not. You do see that. Like God's administrative staff. Though <laughs> so they are his messengers. Yeah. Yeah. You've got mail. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I, I am I am itching to talk about um, the the baddest bad boy Melkor. Uh, <laughs> it's so it's so weird. I think he he is he's just a very like fascinating entity. Um, not not in like an anti-hero sense, but like there like again, I'm gonna go kind of Calvinist on on it, but. I mean, there's a little bit of Melkor in all of us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of depravity that he has on display, I think, really is it, it. He's easy to identify with because, you know, I'm kind of him more than I want to admit. Yeah. Stop being such a dark lord. Am I thinking too highly of myself? <laughs> I'm that bad of a sinner, You're you guys. You might powerful. as well call me the Dark Lord. <laughs> well, and I think even like backtrack a little bit, just the, you know, like having the creation narrative at all, the importance of that, that foundation of like a worldview philosophy for mm -hmm. Tolkien's work, I think is what makes it so real. So when you have someone like Melkor come in, obviously he's very like modeled after Satan. Um, but it just makes that much more sense and why I think a lot of his work is so consistent with our reality, even though it's fantastical in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, he does give us a pretty clear answer to, to the problem of evil in Arda just within this one chapter. Right, because basically everything evil that comes after this is directly relatable to Melkor slash Morgoth uh, and, and his followers. Then thereafter, uh, and, and clearly stating that even those who try to oppose his theme uh, are only serving his theme. Uh, so uh, that's a pretty tidy in-world answer to the problem of evil that, that I think I think largely checks out. Now, here's a question I don't think anyone is asking. Do you think he's, like, Pelagian? Because, it, you know, it's like that influence of Melkor, like, influencing men to bad. Because, like, you talked about total depravity. Mm -hmm. The men aren't really totally depraved. They're just influenced by Melkor. I don't know. Is that Roman Catholic? Soteriology, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Because they're... In the first age, there really are kind of neutral people, almost a little bit Adamic. Mm -hmm. I bet if you if you actually talked to him, he'd be like, "Oh, it's not an allegory," and and he would try to get out of it that way. <laughs> he'd be like, "I'm no heretic. It's not an allegory." Because it it clearly, I, I think it is. I mean, Maddie, like you said, I think it is Blazing. It's. There is kind of this just uh, blank slate of neutrality with the children. Um, 
And I just am counting. I mean, I know the elves don't have any kind of analog so much um, to humanity. So I just count them as people. Maybe I shouldn't, but um, uh, I actually, the, you know, the people in, in early Genesis that live like hundreds of years, they're kind of like them, if anything. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of what I was thinking. It's not one for one, but it has that kind of gist to it. They're living longer. They're healthier. In a sense, they're kind of like Adam. They don't just die. Right. Yeah, I think I think the the argument uh, of of whether it's sort of a Pelagian concept or not is kind of made made problematic by the fact that there is no Adam. There's no one first man, um, but there. But then there are people. It's all. It's, so it's almost like Adam, as one person, is kind of again kind of stretched out over entire generations of mankind. So there, there are the first men who wake up, and uh, their first interaction is is with Finrod Felagund, which you know, spoiler alert: the guy who teaches men to sing. Uh, again, thanks, thanks to the elves uh, for making that happen. But, um, and then there, then there are those who who end up getting who are afraid of the elves and, and afraid of Arome and fall into the clutches of evil forces. And from that point on, after that, there is a line of evil men, and then there's a line of of uh, righteous men who are allied with the Eldar on the side of the Valar and the evil men are allied with um, Sauron or, or whoever, or the orcs or, you know, take, take your pick uh, ultimately serving Melkor too. But, but it's without the, with the lack of one human man, uh, an, an Adam figure to come into place. It's, it's almost like that, uh, that total act, actual freedom of will has, gets stretched out over multiple generations of men. Yeah, it seems like there's a complete lack of, well, probably intentionally on his part, but there's no, they don't actually tell you how they get there. They're just there. Mm-hmm. They just like wake up. Yeah, they're just there. But Chrissy, then also, you reminded me a little bit of, there is a sense of total depravity when it comes to the orcs. Like yeah. you have, at least here, you know, I know that it might vary his lore on how orcs came about but this idea that they're kind of like corrupted elves it's right yeah but we're getting ahead of ourselves sorry that's no i i I was actually really excited you brought that up because that that's another huge principle in in tolkien's work is the fact that evil is not creative evil has to corrupt things that have been made good Mm -hmm. Um, like you know, you see that with the black speech, the fact that it uses um, Cinderin characters, but twists them into a different language. Uh, orcs, you know, even in the different versions of of the origin of orcs for for Tolkien, uh, they they're always twisted elves in some way or another. Um, uh, Morgoth, he he just has to he just tries to hijack the theme. Uh, and he comes in with sort of his his dissonant uh, uh, part of it, so, something that doesn't fit, but 
but it's still music. Like he's trying, he he can't just go and make his own song. He's got to, he's just hijacking his one uh, melody line, <laughs> basically. Um, and when he goes to earth, he's knocking down the things that the Ainu are bringing. So. Yeah. And, think- and, and here like Melkor, he wants to create, like he's staring at the void. He wants to make something, but he can't, all he can do is corrupt. And even with this, with the song, he's still using song. One of the interesting things that I was thinking about is with singing, when you have all of the Einar just singing together, they start off kind of solo, and then they work towards like a more polyphonic sound. They work together and they, they well, they're working together. Um, but then Melkor is out just chilling in the void, looking for fire, the flame or whatever um and he's he's bringing that uh he's going against the polyphonic sound like he's bringing something else in and his emphasis is on the dark and what he can create it reminds me a lot of like that kind of dark like romantic artist um you know the ones that they're just trying to create the their own thing they want to be remembered for this one thing and they ignore the whole world it's kind of a trope in like tv shows and movies and stuff um and i mean it's kind of different but it's like the um the dark spider-man in spider-man 3 like basically that's <laughs> yeah. for. so bully mcguire yeah <laughs> um so there I, I think it again brings back that whole idea of like him that that solitude is an issue that's that's a problem uh because the whole point is that they're working together to accomplish god's work whereas and solitude, yeah, the solo thing solitude from eru mm-hmm. specifically yeah yeah um, i actually i so i have the passage here that that is speaking to what you're you're saying uh if, if so i'm just going to read part of it um so it, it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Iluvatar, for he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. So he's a self-seeker uh, of power. To Melkor, among the Ainur had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. He had gone often alone into the void places, seeking the imperishable flame, capital I, capital F. For desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own, and it seemed to him that Iluvatar took no thought of for the void, and he was impatient of the emptiness. Yet he found not the fire, for it was with Iluvatar. But being alone, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own unlike those of his brethren. So in his isolation, he was twisting himself to be that much more unlike with the other Ainur. And and to use the the scripture analogy, you know, you have Paul or Peter, for example, mentions Paul's writing. Paul is quoting the Old Testament all the time. They're working together, like the sixty six books and however many authors of scripture. They're all working together. But then you have people like Joseph Smith or Muhammad. You know, Muhammad or Joseph Smith, they're like talking to an angel in a cave by themselves or reading from some things with special glasses that only they have. 
it, it is kind of, I mean, it, it kind of works there too. You know, the, the, the leaders of um, other religions or, or her, heretical groups, they're mimicking this idea of, of Melkor and going off and trying to create their own thing. You just dropped the mic. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> no, that, that's that's a really good point. Right? In that 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 isolation thing um, is a is a big deal uh, with Melkor. That'll be something that he passes on to Sauron as well, and Sauron will will come up with crafty things alone. Like that's where the One Ring comes from. You know, he was working with Celebrimbor. Uh, to make rings of power, but then secretly in his own forge, he was making a ring to control the other rings, uh, a master ring, um, and 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 then uh, the Vala Aule will will also uh, do his own secret work, and, and that's where the doors will come from. Um, but that one, oh, I don't want to spoil it, but he actually comes out and and, and confesses that he's done it. Um, and and it it becomes blessed, but um, so there, there's a key difference between those two approaches to, to to isolated work. So Melkor is is burrowing further and further into himself and in his own pride, whereas Aule truly in, in an act of he, he's just so excited for the children, and the children haven't come yet, and so he what little part of the thought of the children of Iluvatar what that was public to them. And turned that into what he thought they would be, the dwarves. Um, but then he, then he came out and confessed that he had done that. Uh, but anyway, we'll we'll get there in good time. But but that isolation thing, yeah, that's I think that's really important. What else about our our bad boy Melkor? He was very oh, bad. He's so bad, the baddest. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting, you know, especially with. With our familiarity with with uh, the Jackson movies, you know, we always associate Sauron with fire, and like it's just the fire thing. Melkor has just as much mastery over fire as he does ice. Uh, you could almost consider him like an an ice lord. Uh, he'll he'll eventually live in, in a frozen place uh, in in Arda, and and it, it mentioned that that he uh, he used cold and heat. And now I'm trying to find that. I, I'm not going to be able to find it. But, but yeah, I, I. So he's he's that much he's that much greater of a dark lord that he's got. Um, he has mastery over several elements, not just not just one. Like cold fire. Cold fire. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think it's I interesting because. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. You go. You go ahead. You know the Bible has the prince of the power of the air. And I'm, and I think it's interesting that he chose air as kind of the big foil for Melkor. That that you know, Man Manway. Are we? I don't know how to pronounce it. Sure. So going with Manway is is associated with air, and yet like Prince of the Power of the Air. Like it's kind of one of those things where it, it it's not congruous at all. I do kind of think of ice and fire, heat, cold. I think of those extreme things as being more destructive mm -hmm. than air, but you know, there are tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that. But uh, I do think it's interesting that he associated those with him rather than air, which is one that mm -hmm. would make, 
I think a little bit more sense, possibly. Yeah, especially because like he's Melkor's trying to 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 take mastery of of Arda, and you would think the way that he would do that is to to hit the skies, you know, uh, to be to be patrolling from the air. You know, if you're typically if you're going to have mastery over something, you're you're literally over it. You know, you're looking down into it. And it would be a good mockery of Eru to say, well, Eru might be out there, but I'm here above, in and above Arda. But yeah, I think that's an interesting decision for for what elements that Melkor would be. Well, and I think like when Iluvatar is talking to him, um, him being Ulmo, um, Mm -hmm. about Melkor having fire and cold, it's like how his influence can be over the water. And how fire, in a sense, can dry up or evaporate water, and then cold can also freeze it. And so he he warns Ulmo about that because that obviously affects water. So I thought I thought that was interesting reading it through this time. I didn't notice it last time. This is when it's helpful to have the uh, uh, the Pokemon type advantage grid memorized. <laughs> <laughs> Mon is a flying up, type. Up with one of those. Yeah, he's like pidgey. <laughs> uh, Yavana is a is a a, a grass type. So. Is Melkor of fire type? Mel- Melkor is a, a, a fire and ice type somehow it's quite quite a type combo (laughs) you can see why he's the most powerful of the Ainur those are very powerful types speaking of Ulmo he he, I think he's my favorite of the the Valar Um, I think he's super cool he's super based Um, he interestingly so I know we didn't get into it here but uh, all of all the Valar are basically are married Except for Ulmo, he's the bachelor Vala. I don't know what significance that is, but I, I guess I assume there had to be a bachelor. Um, but he's the one who works so tirelessly for the benefit of Middle Earth uh, in the course of the Silmarillion. And he takes some really key actions for the defense of the children of Iluvatar, uh, as well as really, I mean, for the created world itself. Any, so anybody have any? thoughts because i know we we get to hear from umo in this in this chapter which is why i bring him up but he occupies the waters which apparently is where the music of iluvatar can be sensed the most and i'm very intrigued with that idea why of all of the elements in middle earth would that be the case why why water i don't know it's in and around everything yeah, like it's the most places. It's in the air. It's in the it's in the snow. It's in the the sea. It's in the rivers, and it runs through the whole earth. Like those silly signs that people have in their yards that say "Water is life." They have all these like <laughs> trite sayings. Salt stuff. Life, man. And then it says "Water is life." Like I mean, that's kind until of you drown. Life. Then it's not. But <laughs> well, yeah, but it is necessary for life. Pretty much all of it. Um, but also you can see in water, you can see beauty 
you can see like majesty, you can see sublime, you can see all of that in water. Like you think about a waterfall or like when I was a kid growing up in South Florida, one of the things I loved doing, or not a kid, I guess I was a teenager, was going to the beach at night, especially when it was a new moon and just looking out at the ocean, you hear the waves and it's just black out there. I guess I was kind of being like a Melkor. Um, (laughs) Seeking the imperishable flame. (laughs) But but it's, you, you feel the power of this, this just expanse of just water. Um, And, and one of the things that is interesting is that water and, and mastery over water for humans is always associated with freedom. So you have like Athens and America now, and then most famously is Britain. Um, and, you know, you have like rural Britannia. And Numenor, don't forget. Um, yeah, and Numenor. Uh, and, and so those are- all very real places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all, all four. Uh, but it's always associated with, with a strong, like free society. I, I, I think water is a good choice for this. It's not always destructive. Like yeah. fire usually seems, I mean, fire is helpful and everything, but it's also very destructive. You know, the earth is cool. It sits there and when it doesn't, that's bad. But water, like those kind of leftist signs, water is life. Yeah. I, kind of the more I thought about it, the more I thought that water was, was almost a, a good stand in for natural revelation of, of Eru. Because in kind of piggybacking off what you said, Zach, you know, water is everywhere. Uh, it's, you know, it, and it's not always destructive either, but like water is so necessary to carry on, uh, to carry on life. It would, that, that, that would stand as a testament to, um, to the existence of God and to his, uh, to his willingness to support the creation, uh, even after uh, it's, it's been placed under the curse of the fall too that that ongoing um, general love for his creation goes on in, 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 in Arda it's, it's pictured best in the water. I think so too, that you can hear water, like unless it's completely still, but you hear waves, you know, streams like trickling streams are very soothing. They kind of have a song in and of themselves, waterfalls, rain, you know, like you can hear it um, in a sense. It is like a song and um, but also can be kind of intimidating and scary if it's a wave, you know, a storm or a really heavy downfall. So it kind of has that powerful. I don't know. I'm always humbled by water, like mm-hmm. being near the ocean, how expansive it is and how while you can maybe say you have control of water, you really can't i mean an earthquake comes a rainstorm comes people are flooded out tidal waves tsunamis um it's just really hard to we can't we can try but we can't stop water in the kind of the same way that mountains do as well like in my own life i've spent very few moments around mountains and when i have it's it's been kind of distracting just just staring uh and and you know, realizing how tiny I truly am. And I think it's no accident here that 
that the most um, the most morally upright and the most powerful of the morally upright Valar um, are uh, associated with water and with the air slash mountains because because uh, Manway also has that association. He lives on the highest mountain in creation, uh, Tani Quetil, and it, it's so tall it rises above the clouds, which then of course correlates to his his air guardian aspect. Um, so I, I I don't think again I don't think it's an accident that these two things that make us feel very tiny and and remember our place in the created order are places that are championed by the most upright of, of Valar and really uh, kind of the two most powerful opponents of Melkor in the course of, of history too. Sorry, Zach, what were you going to say? No, it's okay. It's, um, Smeagol found the ring in water. So just, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, the Luvatar had a plan. He did. He had a plan. <laughs> He, he meant for him to find it. Yep. <laughs> he meant to kill his seal door in the river so that he That's would right. drop it in the water and it would make That's its way right. to Smeagol. Right. Right. Eru's hand is in all things. Yep. He ordains the ends and the means. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's so good. It's so reformed. Absolutely. I, I think well, people it, can't help it, though. Like, truly, if you've, like, read scripture... You might be inconsistent in your doctrines and theology, like everybody, God is in control, all that kind of stuff. Like yeah. they just, you know it. So you just, we don't ever think that hard about it, I think is more the issue than anything. Yeah. If only we did, if only everyone did, it would be, yeah. it would be fun. Well, any, any other, uh, any other big thoughts or, or takeaways from the, from the chapter? I have one more thing that I thought was interesting. I'll just mention it briefly, but I thought it was interesting that some of the Einar just stayed with God or stayed mm -hmm. with Eru. They uh, no interest in, in getting involved. They just want to stay doing what they had been doing. Uh, and I don't think we get any more information about them. Just they are, they're there though. Uh, just doing their thing. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and I, I, I was thinking a lot about the motives, and I was like, I can't think. I mean, it, maybe it's good. Uh, Melkor didn't do that, so maybe that's the the thing that that should be praised. Uh, but I don't know because uh, well, and you know, the other ones they, get praised the, a lot too. Maybe they were able to see all the the hardships that were ahead for for coming to Arda, and just said, you know what, not for me. I'm I'm gonna stay here, and you know stay in the heavenly chorus or whatever you want to call whatever it is they're a part of uh, it, with Eru. Um, but because uh, it's without a doubt, the, the, the Valar went through intense uh, work in, in suffering uh, when they came to Arda. So I think of them as wanting to stay and worship and you think of them as cowards who want to avoid the, <laughs> <laughs> avoid all the trouble. I, I would I find it difficult that they could take part in in singing that whole world into existence and not be just like overcome with excitement for the children of Iluvatar to come because that's basically the reason that 
the Valar do come to to Arda is like we want to see the waking of the children of Luvatar. Like they're all so stoked for them to come along. Um, you know, Arome goes like running around Arda, looking basically looking for them. It, I, I would find it hard to not be excited and, and want to go join in, but obviously there, yeah, were, there were costs I, too. I couldn't help but think of like First Peter. I think it's chapter one where he talks about the angels longing to look. Mm-hmm. I just, I kept thinking of that reading this. I don't know if that was in his mm-hmm. mind at all, but yeah. I think of the Ainur a lot like angels. Um, mm-hmm. We've kind of talked mm-hmm. about that already, but just that longing to look and that they know in a sense what's happening, but there's just some things mm-hmm. that they don't, they can't wait to find out and see how it's going to play out. And that just harkened me back to that section of scripture i loved it and it's also it's also pretty cool to remember as knowing further on what's going on in the book but um men who die they're given like death for them is the gift of iluvatar to men something that elves don't experience and they get to go to the very same place that the ainur that did that didn't come to uh Mm. to arda get to be so the basically the throne room of Eru is filled with Ainur that didn't come to Arda and men that only knew Arda until they died, received the gift, and now exist solely in the presence of Eru for eternity, something that even elves never get to do. So in, in a certain sense, even the older children of Iluvatar don't fully understand <laughs> what Eru is doing. Only yeah. men get that. Only men get that gift. I know that's a, that's a big that's a big spoiler, a big topic for another time. But spoiler um, alert: <laughs> God created mankind special. Who'd have thought? <laughs> that is that is something that I also noticed. You know, they're definitely a Mago Day. You know, you have the Ainur involved in everything else, forming the Earth, all this kind of stuff but you have the children of Iluvatar uniquely and specifically set apart from all of creation. And I thought that was also For fascinating. Him. Yeah. yeah. It is really fascinating. Uh, it's all, it's almost like the elves are created for Arda and men are created for Eru. You know, like mm. they, they spend what little time they have to spend when they wake up in Arda, but their real home is, is at Eru's at Eru's throne. Sorry, Zach, I cut in on you there. That's okay. <laughs> um, it, it, it talks about um, how the, the Valar are, their lives are tied to the life of Arda. Mm-hmm. Um, and included in that is Melkor. So it's it's interesting that even even that he's he's still an integral part of it. <laughs> it's like what were you thinking? But you know, it's it's part of the you know Eru knows his mind, right? He knows what he's thinking and he still lets him go. Um and ties his fate to that of Arda. So I, I thought that that was pretty interesting. 
too. I'm not sure of all the significance of that. But. I was going to say that yeah, sounds well, he, a little super lapsarian. <laughs> <laughs> Melkor definitely does put his mark on Arda, though. Like there mm-hmm. are there are areas of of the land that there are scars there from this initial war uh, un, until the end of time. Um, you know, there's there's a part of the land that is basically infused with Melkor's screams of pain. Uh, later on that we learn about in the similar alien too so he certainly makes his mark on the earth and, yep. and i think it's i think it's really interesting that in the course of this of this chapter you know we're not really told like how much time goes by like you know we get the six day creation countdown in genesis but uh, we don't know how long the span of time goes but we we know that at, we we have the music going at the beginning of the chapter uh and the creation of the world great beauty being wakened into song. And by the end of it, we have a war <laughs> between angels, yeah. basically. Uh, yeah. and, and the chapter ends in war. Well, I think another interesting thing is that the, the creation is ongoing. It, it doesn't, it doesn't ever stop because they're still trying to fulfill the vision mm-hmm. um, up until the end. So, all of their all of their fates are tied up in completing the creation, completing the vision that they were shown. Um, and and again, Melkor's part of that. Um, so up until the very the very end, when he's you know everything is remade, right? Um, right, right, right. So yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I think that's super cool. Tolkien sounds like a day ager to me. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating fella. Thank you all very much. This has been a, an excellent discussion so far. I'm excited to talk about the next chapter. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll save my thoughts for why Aule is the best for uh, next episode. Sweet. <laughs> We'll have our own battle over the Valar. Or Arome. I don't know. I can't decide. Uh, yeah, Arome is pretty great. He gets plus one or 500 for having a horse. The horse. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. I'm kind of shocked that he wasn't already the number one. Well, I'm undecided. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Watch Rings of Power. Watch. I do not endorse it. Well, I don't know. I'm watching it too, so I can't say I don't endorse that sentiment, but uh, yeah. I will watch it, but I'll just don't watch it thinking that's all that Tolkien is. Don't think you won't watch it thinking that it's anything close to it, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing I've told people is like, uh, watch the show and let your frustration with it as bad television whet your appetite for the lore behind it that they should have adapted. Mm-hmm. So every time somebody gets frustrated with the show, I'm like pointing them, no, they this thing that's being told that's actually told better you know, over <laughs> here. And, and so I really, I ought to just have like a backup pile of Silmarillions waiting to go and just like start <laughs> handing them out. <laughs>
I'll put a little gospel tract in them too, you know, just for for good so measure. When Mormon when Mormons show up at your door, you hand them a copy of the Silmarillion. <laughs> Let me tell you about that the one god Eru. <laughs> Do you have time to talk about Iluvatar? There's multiple gods. We're totally okay with that. Yeah, they could. There's a bridge there. We can make a bridge. Have you heard about the warrior king Galadriel? Queen, queen, not king. Queen. She's queen. basically a king, Guy Ladriel. Same thing. It's 2022. You're so heteronormative, Zach. We're woke. Get, get over it. Let's Nobody's be honest. Like, Thank you. How many times has a movie or a TV show been better than the book, though? Um, like, unless the book is absolute trash. And the movie is better because the book was trash. I can't think of any times. Exactly. So hmm. you got to lower your standards a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, low standards, I, guys. Low standards. I can't. Yeah, I can't think of a book. I can't think of a movie that was better than the movie that I put on in my head when I read the book. If that makes sense. Like... My imagery of who the people looked like, like what the world looked like, all that kind of stuff. I still haven't, I still haven't found a movie that I saw after I read the book that was better than what I had in my own mind. Well, once Elon Musk buys Twitter, <laughs> we'll be able to, you know, communicate more effectively. So yeah, yeah, brain neuralink. We're gonna neuralink. And you can show us the movie in your head. I'm, I'm really excited for that. I'm praying for this. <laughs> I, I may fast for this. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. On that note, thank you all very much for this wonderful discussion. And uh, we'll be back again soon. And uh, continue our, our lovely little tromp through the highways and byways of the Silmarillion. And until next time, Namadie and may Yahweh richly bless you. All right, you can laugh now. They're we're the illiterate Baptists. <laughs> <laughs>